Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and this is NPR News. So glad to have you join us today. Our spring member drive continues here at NPR, and I encourage you to make a donation at nprnews.org or by calling us at 800-227-2811. And if you're listening right now, I encourage you to do it right now because during the 9 o'clock hour, we know the next $5,000 in gifts will be matched by the NPR Board of Trustees. So this is a great time to make that donation. We're calling today Take Action Tuesday with just a few days left in the spring member drive. It's important to give now so that we can meet our overall goal of $400,000. And as we've been telling you, we are currently behind target for this budget year. So as economic uncertainty continues, we rely on you to keep NPR strong. Don't wait, donate now, and help grow the future of public media at nprnews.org or by calling 800-227-2811. Well, today we're going to talk about something that is not easy to discuss but important to understand. People who have been sexually assaulted are often not believed, and their cases are often not prosecuted. This can be especially true for black women and girls. So this hour, we're talking about how to prevent sexual violence and better support all survivors. Later, we'll hear a recorded conversation with author Roxane Gay, a survivor of sexual assault. And we'll talk about an effort to create a state office here in Minnesota dedicated to addressing the high rate of murdered and missing black women and girls. But right now, I want to introduce you to my guests here in the studio with me. I'm so happy to have Artika Roller. Artika is the executive director of the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault, which is a statewide network of organizations working to end sexual violence. Artika, I'm so glad you could come in and be with us. Well, it's good to be here. Good morning. Hi. Sexual violence, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but we know that some progress has been made in having these conversations. But we also know that when survivors of sexual violence speak up, their stories are often still discounted. Why do you think that tends to be the case, Artika? Yeah, well, only 3% of survivors actually report and choose to go through the criminal justice system um, after they experience a sexual assault. And I think that there's a lot of factors that um, play into that, Um, not being believed, um, not having the criminal justice response that they thought that they would receive. And I also think the societal's deprioritization of sexual violence plays into that as well. And that's mainly because of, of images we see in media, or why do you think it's, it's, it is not taken as seriously as it could be? You know, it is images that we see in media, but I also think that when we're talking specifically about black women, there is this thought, um, and Roxane Gay talks about this, oh, that wasn't that bad. We have more societal issues that we're dealing with around racism and oppression and system failures. And so if that harm has um, been committed against you, that's not that bad. You can put that to the side and deal with the prevalent issues that we're facing in a community. Tell me more about the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Uh, It's a statewide organization, but what is it that you all do? Yeah, so the Minnesota Coalition is a statewide organization that provides advocacy, membership support, system change, and prevention work for 66 programs that are providing direct service to um, victims of sexual assault across the state of Minnesota. Some people think of us Um, Very similar to maybe like a union where we're providing advocacy and policy work 
and um, really uplifting and centering the priorities of programs across the state of Minnesota. So let's talk about what's happening right now. um, We know that the state legislature is wrapping up in the next couple of weeks. The session is. What changes are you hoping to see passed um, or to become state law here in Minnesota? Right. So we have multiple changes and initiatives that we're looking at. The number one priority is to increase a state investment to um, direct service programs that are providing that critical um, services to victims and survivors. They're providing advocacy, mental health support, medical support um, as well, and housing emergency um, response to victims of sexual assault. So we're asking for a $25 million increase to our base funding. We have not received an increase in our base funding from the state for over eight years. And at the same time, we are experiencing a deficit from federal funding as well. One Another aspect that's uh, difficult um, is prosecution of cases. And so what can you tell us about what you've learned about why it is so difficult uh, to prosecute um, sexual assault cases? You know, the other um, initiative that we have and bill that we're moving forward is um, a 90-date requirement of turnaround for sexual assault evidentiary kits. One of the things that are very difficult for prosecution to move forward if a person has um, submitted to a sexual assault examination after they have been raped, if the analysis has not been returned in a timely manner, it is hard for some of the cases to move forward and to be charged. Right now, we're working with several people that say that they have not received the analysis or the completion of testing for their kids for over a year now. Um, Our medical forensic lab, the BCA, is saying that Um, They're seeing um, the average is seven or eight months. But as we talk to people who have submitted um, to sexual assault exams, um, they're saying that it's 11 months to a year for current cases. Um, And then we still have a backlog of cases that had not been tested previously. And so there was a case in the media this week, um, Andrew um, Works, where um, he was found guilty and charged with sexual assault from one of the backlog cases, and it was 10 years that um, sexual assault happened 10 years ago. And what's the explanation for it, or why? We get many explanations, and I think that some of the laboratories, just like other um, industries um, in our community, are um, facing staff shortaging. Mm -hmm. Um, We also um, have heard um, that there was an increase in crimes in um, in the state, and but we know that over the past several years, there's we're looking at a decrease in crime. So there was an increase in crime, um, but you know our stance is that rape is a violent crime and it should be prioritized just like every other crime. But there seems to be a lack of commitment to um, getting these um, kits tested. And I want to remember that behind every kit, there's a victim and survivor. We're just not talking about um, a sample, a test tube, or or analysis. We're talking about community members that have suffered and experienced great harm and that 
their um, the results of that to move their cases forward when they want to or make a commitment that they want a legal response, we have delayed. And um, I'm going to say we, but our systems have not prioritized that. And that's why MNCASA has been um, really moving forward legislation that would address that. And that legislation is best practice, federal best practice, nationwide best practice, to have kit results tested in a turnaround time of 30 days. And I'm wondering if I should take a step back here and just really define what a sexual assault kit is. When we say a kit, what are we talking about? We are talking about a person who has um, went through with an examination after they experienced a a sexual assault, Mm -hmm. a crime. And so the kit is the... um, the evidence that was um, obtained through that's that collected. exam. Mm-hmm. Yes. The evidence. And I was shocked to learn that, that some survivors of sexual assault, um, they say they're billed for the medical exam that was necessary to collect evidence for their case. Um, is that something that is, is being addressed? You know, we've addressed that um, previously, um, and those tests are actually billed by county. But what we've seen by county-to-county billing system, that there is some discrepancy on how much is um, paid if, by accident, a victim and survivor receives a bill for those services. So we've been moving forward with um, a state payer system, a state billing system that will address that. And then I think the other thing that we have, um, we're moving forward this year is that um, there is language that says that um, during the um, sexual assault exam, a person would be tested for STI, sexually transmitted infections. And we are moving forward to say not only testing, but treat it as well. In your years in in, in working um, with uh, sexual assault uh, survivors, what are some common themes that you see in terms of how it affects um, someone as they move through life? You know, the common themes that I, I hear is that individuals, it is a long-term journey of healing, that it impacts them for years and years um, um, moving forward. It is not that incident happens and then it's over with. It is something that they carry with them throughout their their lives. And it is a journey to healing and recovery. And that um, criminal justice response is just one method or one way that they feel like they can um, um, experience some healing through that journey. I think the other thing is that um, over and over again, um, the systems haven't worked well for victims and survivors, and not only from victims and survivors, but we have seen that. Um, there was a denied justice series um, in 2018 that really just highlighted the lack of our response um, for victims and survivors. And that response is started with, unfortunately, law enforcement all the way through the judicial system. And I said in the introduction or the first question that I feel like some progress has been made in having conversations and, and talking and even maybe, um, you know, families educating their, their young children about what to expect and how to handle situations. And is that, have you found that to be true, that there is more open discussion of this and even education and training and, and you know, also conversations about consent? Yeah. You know, progress has been made. We still have a ways to go. Um, progress has been made, and we've seen that with um, prevention work um, and working with um, young folks, um, how we talk about 
um, sexual assault. Um, we know that sexual assault happens um, with young folks and that we usually see that happening with someone they know, acquaintance, mm-hmm. um, someone um, in a, in their circle or network mm-hmm. um, of community. And so talking about them, talking to them about that and that it's not, you know, um, um, stranger danger. It could be someone that you, and, know. that you know. And so talking to them about that in different ways. So we've made progress within our community um, around how we talk about sexual assault and prevention. Um, I also think that we've made progress, again, with legislation um, here um, around exam billing and also multidisciplinary teams that are working together to put together protocol and practice, and that includes um, law enforcement, um, prosecutors, um, advocacy, mental health providers. And so we've made progress in those ways of working together to make sure that we're moving, um, uh, you know, we're moving on practice and protocol um, further. Artika Roller is the executive director of the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault, a statewide network of organizations working to end sexual violence. And uh, Artika, we're going to continue our conversation later in the hour. And in a few minutes, we're going to hear a recorded conversation with author Roxanne Gay. Roxanne was the featured speaker at a recent virtual event hosted by the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Now back to our conversation about preventing sexual violence and how to better support people who've been sexually assaulted. I want you to listen to a conversation I had last month with author and cultural critic Roxane Gay. In late April, she spoke at a virtual event hosted by the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Roxane Gay's books include her memoir, Hunger, which focused on her relationship with her body and experience as a survivor of sexual violence. And other works include her book of essays titled Bad Feminist and the anthology Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture. I asked Roxanne how sexual violence, how sexual violence affects our connection to our bodies. A lot of times when you've endured trauma, you have lost so much control and you always wonder why I didn't do more, why I didn't fight back, why I didn't run away and, you know, take control in that moment. And because your no was not listened to, it's hard to believe that you're ever going to have control over your body ever again, because it has been violated in this really terrible way. And I know this is personal for you. You've you've talked about this um, after you were sexually assaulted as a a 12-year-old. Uh, Mm -hmm. You've shared that you gained 40 pounds, and after losing and gaining weight many times, you wrote that in your 20s that you consciously explored how much weight you would have to gain to escape the male gaze completely. Can you share more about that? Yeah, I, I write about this in my memoir, Hunger, which is a memoir of my body. And I was really exploring, you know, what is the story of my body? And I know that the story of my body starts with this sexual assault when I was 12. And I just knew I never wanted that to happen again. And I understand what our culture thinks about fatness. And so earlier on, I don't know that it was as conscious as it became later on, but I wanted to make myself big and safe. I wanted to be a fortress. And 
I wanted to, you know, make myself such that men would not look at me or be interested in me. And as many women I'm sure can attest, there really is just no point where a man won't be interested, whether they admit it publicly or not. And so in hunger, I grapple with that and trying to figure out, okay, now how do I undestroy myself? Which is not to say that fatness is destruction, but to say that I personally was engaged in a lot of destructive behaviors that weren't actually keeping me safe at all. And so I I believe, I mean, I know there are a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings. Um, What have you found that people truly just don't understand or or misunderstand about sexual trauma and the relationship to the body? You know, one of the key things people misunderstand is that there is no singular narrative around sexual trauma. It affects everyone differently. And it it affects how we live in our bodies differently. And I try to create as much space as possible for those different stories so that people don't assume that everyone has this same experience. Um, And, you know, oftentimes it just is such a profound loss of control that it can become all consuming to try and regain control in some way. And some of those attempts to regain control can be incredibly self-destructive. Sometimes they can be incredibly gratifying uh, or both. And it really is a journey and it's a very individual journey, though I have always found that there are, are points of commonality across victim experiences. Are there some boundaries that you have, um, that you use, um, boundaries that you set uh, when you need space to, to take care of yourself? Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> you know, boundaries have not really historically been my strong suit. Um, personally, you know, I love a good boundary. But yeah, me I, too. I like saying no. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, but I struggle with that very much. In fact, I have a post-it here on my desk um, that says learn to disappoint people. Um, and uh, the reason I have this on my desk is because it's so hard for me to say no. It's so hard for me to disappoint people who want things from me. If you say no, what happens? Well, this is what I struggle with the most. They, nobody takes no for an answer. And, And part of it, I think is this idea of empowerment feminism where with women, when it happens with women, um, that, you know, don't take no for an answer, you know, boss up. And so women think, oh, okay, I, I'm never going to take no for an answer. I hear your no, but here's my rejoinder. Nine times out of 10, when I say no, people come back to me with like a better offer or because they think it's a negotiating tactic. But for me, it's actually not a negotiating tactic. It's I can't take on any new work until 2026. And it, it, so it's challenging. It's really challenging. And then it just makes me incredibly angry because... Mm-hmm. I have worked so hard to get to that point where I say no, because I have to do a lot of self-talk. I have to do a lot of reminding myself that um, I can and should say no to this thing I don't want to do. So it's hard. It's really hard. And I also come from a culture, I'm Haitian American, you know, where my mom has said to my face multiple times, I don't believe in boundaries. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> dead ass serious mom is up on it she's like no she's up on it and she's 75 <laughs> she's not changing she is just not changing uh in minnesota we have this cultural practice called minnesota nice which mm-hmm. loosely uh translates to you know avoiding 
conflict, um, resistance to talk about hard things um, like sexual violence and, and racism. Um, and do you encounter some similar discomfort in your work? Um, oh, I don't really, I don't want to get into that. Uh, and how do you respond? Yeah. Oh, I'm from Nebraska. And oh, so we, okay. Nice. You know. In Nebraska. <laughs> and whenever I encounter that, I get so frustrated because it's actually not very nice to be unwilling to be comfortable with discomfort, to avoid difficult things, because then you see what happens, especially in a city like I've been to Minneapolis many, many times. And I love Minneapolis. It's a wonderful city. But it's also an incredibly, like most cities in America, incredibly, incredibly segregated. Mm-hmm. And every time I go to Minnesota, I, I, I'm in these predominantly white environments. And I just think, where are all the Black people? Especially given the rich um, multicultural communities in Minnesota who have been in Minnesota for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever wants to talk about it. All these nice, polite folk who bring me to Minneapolis for one thing or another, they're just like, he, he, he. And I think this is not productive. This is not how you can manifest change when you completely overlook a very profound problem. But part of it is we haven't learned how to have civil conversations. It's not something yes. that's really taught or necessarily sought after, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I also think civility is overrated. Like, how do you want me to be civil with a Nazi? You know, that is a very uncivil thing. And I don't think that there's any sort of common ground that we can find. And sometimes people um, resist hearing that. And that's totally fine because we all contain multitudes and can disagree. But sometimes civility is simply another means of holding up white supremacy. Let's get back to talking more about um, anti-Blackness. How does anti-Blackness impact sexual violence and how our society responds to violence against Black women, girls, and LGBTQIA plus people? Well, you know, history has taught us quite a lot about the ways in which this culture does or does not value Black women, our autonomy, and our bodies, starting with enslavement. Um, There's actually a book coming out in a couple months called Say Anarcha by J.C. Hallman. And it's about how Anarcha was an enslaved woman who was basically the mother of gynecological medicine in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm forgetting his name, but this doctor who was in New York basically experimented on her and often did so without anesthesia because he did not believe that Black women could feel pain. And you know, when you look at things like that, that the very foundation of medicine, of women's health care, mm-hmm. is grounded in anti-Blackness. It's everywhere. And so we have to address anti-Blackness and, and recognize that the repercussions of sexual assault for Black women are absolutely going to be different from the repercussions of sexual assault for white women. Uh, And how we respond to that assault is also going to be different because so many people feel entitled to Black women's bodies and people harbor a lot of weird and racist stereotypes about Black women's bodies and Black women's autonomy that we really just always, you know, are interested in sex or that we would never think of saying no. And I beg to differ, as do I'm pretty sure all Black women. 
And how do you see anti-blackness maybe playing a role um, in even how law enforcement may pursue investigating cases involving sexual violence? Well, we certainly see it in the statistics in terms of the cases that uh, prosecutors choose to actually move forward to prosecute. We see it in terms of how, if at all, uh, rapes by women of color and black women in particular are investigated. Um, we see it if, when, if and when um, black women are actually believed at all. Uh, because anti-blackness is systemic, it shows up in absolutely all of the systems that uh, affect our lives. In your book, uh, Bad Feminists, uh, you make it clear that feminism is inherently flawed. Um, so can you tell us more about um, the harm that mainstream feminism causes and why being a bad feminist is more realistic? Yes. When I wrote Bad Feminist, it was many years ago, and it started, well, it didn't start, but it's named after the title essay. And in that, partly it was just tongue-in-cheek because I was like, ha-ha, I'm a bad feminist. <laughs> but I also understood that historically good feminism has prioritized the needs and concerns of heterosexual, upper-middle-class white women to the detriment of any other kind of woman, including able-bodied, I mean, uh, women with disabilities, queer women, um, working-class women. And, and people who inhabit like multiple aspects of those very, you know, like those identity markers. Mm-hmm. And if that's good feminism, then no, 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 I'm a very bad feminist because I do believe that, you know, trans women are women. And I do believe that we absolutely need to prioritize the needs of women of color. We've been listening to author and cultural critic Roxanne Gay. Our conversation was recorded during a virtual event hosted last month by the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. The coalition's executive director, Artika Roller, is with me in the studio this hour, and we will hear more from her in just a few minutes. But first, I'm here to remind you that our spring member drive continues here at NPR, and I encourage you to make a donation at nprnews.org or by calling us at 800 227 2811. Now back to our conversation about preventing sexual violence and how to better support people who've been sexually assaulted. Artika Roller is here in the studio with me this morning. Artika is the executive director of the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault, a statewide network of organizations working to end sexual violence. And Artika, uh, we just heard uh, author Roxane Gay talk about the impact of sexual violence, especially on black women and uh, a lot there in that conversation. But what stood out to you in some of those comments that we just shared with our listeners? What stood out to me um, with Dr. Gay was when she really talked about anti-blackness. And I know that I've spent my 20-year career doing this work, but really centering black women um, and black girls in the work that I do, making sure that their needs are being met and that we're doing education around prevention and intervention throughout um, communities. Um, Black women experience sexual violence at very high rates, but they're not, their stories are not often told. And we also know that there is over 60,000 black women and girls across the nation that are missing. And we don't hear about the stories of missing and murdered black women the way that we hear about um, white women's experience when they're harmed. 
And Artika, you're actually a, a leader in this area here in Minnesota. You're on a task force convened by the state to look more closely at, at missing and murdered black women and girls. How did that task force come about? Well, the task force actually was an initiative that was led by um, community and people that had experienced um, violence and missing loved ones, and also um, led by Representative Ruth Richardson, who has been a champion in this work. And so 2021, um, the legislators um, put together a task force. And the task force, again, was a multidisciplinary team um, with um, legislators, law enforcement, impacted folks, and um, also advocates as well. Medical expertise was also used. And the task force was really put together to investigate violence against black women in the state of Minnesota and consider what is needed to support them, their families, and communities. And we really came out of that work with three major themes that um, when we are working with missing and murdered um Um, around the issue around missing and murdered African-American women in their families and communities. Um, We have to hire folks that can respond, that reflect the community, require training for professionals so we can um, get the impact and the results. We know that data shows that there is only... The only difference with getting a meaningful result from a case is that there was someone that represented that community that was actually working um, on the case. I want to share some um, statistics um, that uh, we pulled out of the report that the task force released uh, in December. Um, Black women represent just 7% of Minnesotans, and yet black women represent 40% of domestic violence victims. Also here in Minnesota, black women are almost three times as likely to be murdered as white women. And as we look at that, what seems to account for this this high rate of violence against black women and girls? What do we know about that? Yeah, and there's historical content um, regarding that. I think Roxanne Gay talked about it, you know, the disposal of um of black women and girls, the silencing um, around that, um, you know, as well, lack of resources um, that is poured into community. As I was talking about earlier about the funding for victim and services, we know that we continue to pour funding into our public safety models, and which may be necessary, but we're not getting you know, the percentage of those dollars to do prevention work on the other side. We know that law enforcement has said we don't want to do and we're not equipped to. We're not the expertise in providing social service to um, when we're responding to a call. And so on the other side of that, we need people to do that work. And we're not investing in that um, as a community. I think you alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, uh, culturally responsive services. So what what do culturally responsive services for survivors of sexual assault, like what does that look like? Um, Right. In our community now, we have several organizations that are doing um, some of this work. Um, But what we're really missing is that our mainstream organizations may have one black advocate or um, a director. And Roxanne also talked about this as well. When that person leaves that organization, those culturally responsive services go away. So we have to have those services embedded. Um, And then we also have to center and uplift the voices of black women and girls and what they're saying specifically, what do they need? Um, Not you know, based on best practices. Um, But we need to put in or embed um, structures that create 
um, spaces that are safe and responsive to black women and girls. And so, um, you know, for us, by us, we say that um, quite often. We do need that investment, but we also need to be leading and um, and having that impact embedded within community. What can families do if they have a loved one and they, and they feel like, um, you know, that they're not being taken seriously by law enforcement around, um, you know, the disappearance of a loved one or an, an, accus- an accusation of violence, but disappearance in, in particular? Like, what can you do? Because I, I know families, it's a nightmare and you feel so yeah. powerless. Yeah, so um, Brittany um, Lewis, um, excuse me, Brittany Clarity was mm-hmm. a young woman that um, was missing. I think it was back in 2017. And her family was not taken serious. Um, when they first reached out, um, they were told, well, maybe she's ran away. Maybe she's with her boyfriend. And um, the Clarity family was saying that no, we talk to her every day. We know something is wrong. And unfortunately, they were correct. Their um, daughter, Brittany, had been murdered. Um, she was missing. She was found um, at the in Pound Lot, which her mother actually um you know, um, directed police there and um, in the trunk of her car. And the family believes that if there would have been a response quicker when they first um, have reached out, that there is a possibility that she could have um, still been alive. Her sister, um, Lakeisha Lee, was actually the chair of the murdered and missing um, task force, um, Mm -hmm. missing and murdered task force for African-American women. And so, you know, what what they can do right now is, I would say, reach out to your advocacy um, programs. You can also contact um, MENCASA, and we'll make a referral and connect you with the advocacy program in your area. And we have seen just better results when you have an advocate that understands how the systems work that can help you. Reaching out to an agency your, that does yes, this work. Correct. That that can, can create a response. And so who... Like on on your team or the organizations that you work with, um, you know, like how what how does it work? I mean, they you get a phone call or an email, and then someone returns the call, and that's you, correct. That's where it starts. Like, yes. what's your story? Yes. Right. Uh, in February, we know that the Minnesota uh, the, the House of Representatives um, at the state legislature voted to establish what would be the nation's first office of missing and murdered Black women and girls. Uh, what would this office do? And and where do things stand with that? Yeah, so the um, right now we're hoping that um, it will pass. There is a large public safety um, omnibus bill, mm-hmm. and we're hoping that it will pass in that. And we're pretty um, confident that um, it will pass and, and become law. Um, there is also a current established um, missing and murdered Indigenous relatives office um, as well. So this would be um, an office that would um, work with um, our system agencies as well to kind of look at what is the um, the cold cases. We're hoping that they could do that. They would also seek out funding and coordination between systems to make sure that families are getting the responses that they need. Um, so being that liaison, there is conversations about creating a hotline um, for families um, that mm-hmm. have missing loved ones so they can get an immediate result. And then um, so they and also they'll have better access to information and um, and then training effective um, 
practices for our system advocates and also for law enforcement, our um, our nonprofit organizations that are doing work, and then embedding and making sure that the staff within that office reflects community. And not only do we hire, but um, you know, really having a sustainable process so people can be retained as well um, in those um, positions. And then um, finally, you know, creating better um, pathways for emergency shelter and emergency response. Mm-hmm. Artika, in just the last minute we have here, um, if someone wants to report a sexual assault or is trying to decide whether or not to do that, what are some of the, the advice would you give as, as far as the first steps, like the what we know would be the, the best first steps to take? Yeah. The best first steps, again, I would say um, reach out to your um, advocacy programs. Um, would be the best first step. Like what? What's an advocacy um, program? Like? And the advocacy programs that provide the direct service, for example, the Sexual Violence Center um, in uh, Minneapolis, that would be an organization. Um, in St. Paul, I would say Casa um, um Casa Esperanza, and I might Mm -hmm. have said that Mm -hmm. wrong. That's another organization. So I would say um, reach out to your um, advocacy um, organizations. You can also contact Mencasa, and Mencasa would um, help you do that. And our website is mencasa.org. Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Again, a statewide network of organizations working to end sexual violence. Uh, Artika Roller, our time is up. Thank you for coming in, and thank you for all the, the work that you all are doing. Thank you as well. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.